Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Charles Pope. So... You know, I um, have a, a um, I think we all, you know, when we, when we come together like this, it's always a nice experience that uh, when we look at our culture, we have a lot of concerns of where we're going in this country. But every now and again, remember there's that, that discouraging moment in um, Elijah's life where he was in a cave and he was praying and he was kind of complaining to God when God finally did come in the small, still voice. And he said, you know, I'm the only one left. Everyone else bent the knee to Baal, you know, and uh, God said, nah, cut it out, man. I got 7,000 folks back there in Jerusalem never bent the knee to Baal, and uh, you're going to go down there, Elijah. You're going to go take good care of him. You're going to anoint your successor, and by gosh, we're moving forward with this thing. So it's always good to see uh, when we're experiencing difficulties, I think, in our culture to see good, um, good faithful Catholics. It was great to be in church this morning and see uh, so many enthusiastic folks, and then to see you here tonight. And so it's a real boost to me as a priest, and I, I hope... We never forget uh, what a gift we are to each other. We've got to really stick together and um, work, work through difficult times. And I don't know about you, but I'm awful glad we got Our Lady praying. Uh, I don't know what anyone... She's got her, every now and again I've seen her do her mama bear. <laughs> and she really comes in and, and uh, takes care of business. So just keep praying, keep asking Our Lady uh, to pray. And so tonight I was asked to talk a little bit on Our Lady. And um, I just feel like, I'm gonna, what am I going to tell you that's new? Because you all are very devoted, I know, to her. But let me, let me perhaps go through with you some theological points, at least for the record. And um, you uh, and I will you know, kind of look together at this. But I wanted to be clear. I, I titled this not just the Immaculate Conception of Mary as cosmetic or crucial, but frankly, Mary in general. There are some people who tend to think of Mary kind of as a Christmas ornament, or they think of her only in sentimental terms. She, she's there with the baby Jesus, and it's nice, and it's lovely at Christmas, and otherwise little is said. And some of our Protestant brethren, of course, who are troubled by our devotion, um, are, are, uh, but even then, they might have some awareness of her role at Christmas, but largely Christmas ornament stuff. Are you praying with me? You know, there, the, but the deep theological meaning of Mary is lost on many. Mary is not just cosmetically lo a lovely lady dressed in blue. She is lovely. How many of you know Mother Mary is, is a lovely lady? She is indeed our mother, and we're proud of her great, magnificent beauty as the sinless queen of heaven. But she's so much more than that, see. Theologically, her role is so, so central. And going all the way back to the earliest days of the church with the great title, her first major title, Theotokos, right? The, the God-bearer, the one who bears a God into this world. She's the great Ark of the Covenant. So we're going to look at some of that tonight. So the kind of description of my talk is just maybe right up there at the top. The sinlessness of the Blessed Virgin Mary is disputed by many non-Catholics, but is well attested both in Scripture and tradition. And this truth is insisted on by the Church not merely as a kind of a cosmetic protection of Mary's dignity, but as a crucial truth related to our salvation and the theological significance of Mary as both the New Eve and the Ark of the New Covenant. So all of these teachings of Mary are very tied together very important theologically, all right? So we're not just talking about lovely sentimental things. There, there is that. I, but I, I would say to you, let's, let's look tonight a little bit more at the theological meaning of all of this. So with all that in mind, the first thing I was asked to speak on, somewhat out of season because we celebrate this in December, but the immaculate conception of Mary 
Now we're going to celebrate her birthday here in a couple days. Or is it tomorrow? Tomorrow. It's already, it's already past Vespers. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mother Mary. Woo. Pardon me, I've been all over God's green acre the last week. I was up in Vermont doing a priest retreat uh, for, I was preaching for those, for 80, 80 priests up there in Vermont, so pray for them. They got a tough job up there. And, um, uh, but I just got back and came running over here, and so here we are. But listen, brethren, I want to say that um, her sinlessness um, is announced right away in Scripture. In fact, the opening words uh, addressed to her, announced her sinlessness. And the angel, Gabriel, as you know, came, and um, we won't need to look this up. I'm just going to look at the one line with you today, but we're going to look up some scriptures tonight. But just this one's right in front of you. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. So the angel Gabriel gives her a salutation. Hail, in the Greek, shire, you know, the, the hail, you know, greetings. Um, but then what's interesting is usually there's a name that comes. And we all say Hail Mary, but the angel Gabriel gave a title. Hail, full of grace. And so what does this word mean? And it's very significant. So we see here immediately that the angel hails her as the sinless one. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, this word literally means she who has been graced. Uh, and I say that in a completed or a full sense because it's a perfect passive participle. Now you all know, remember your, you all remember your grammar, right? Well, a participle is kind of a, uh, a verb acting like an adjective, you know. <laughs> but it's a perf The main thing I want you to see here is that it's a perfect passive. Now, what does that all signify? Well, first of all, before we go any further, you know, perfect means complete, entire lacking in nothing. Amen? So as a perfect passive participle, um, it's describing not just a past action, that you were, uh, you know, conceived without sin, and you're really a nice person. It was the day that you were born, the world smiled. And that was all, that's all in the past. But the perfect passive participle is saying, it's not just describing a past action, it's describing, it's a perfect tense, and it indicates an action that has been completed in the past, but is now resulting in a present state of being. Alright, so again, whatever happened to her in the past has now impacting the present. See, it isn't just a past event, it's active now as the angel speaks to her. And the passive voice indicates that it happened to Mary, the passive voice. Uh, passive voice means uh, something happened to me, not that I did something. So we are not indicating, nor is the angel Gabriel saying that Mary, by her own power, has remained sinless, but rather that something has happened to her that in the past that is still active and present at the moment that the angel is speaking to her. You who have been graced, hail. All right? You who have been graced. Now, again, uh, she does not... Accomplish this or sustain it on her own. It is a gift given to Mary by God. So, a perfect, a passive participle. She who has been graced. Now, being in the perfect tense, it indicates a completion. Something is complete. It's not just something that's sort of underway. How many of you are all sort of there? Are you perfect yet? Um... Okay, thank you. I thought it was just me. <laughs> but uh, I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. <laughs> a change, a change has come over me. All right. Amen. 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 But we're, we're not perfect. We're, we, it hasn't yet been fully accomplished for us. But for Mary, the angel says, Gabriel says, you who have been graced. And this kakaratomani means to be fully graced. That's why Jerome's translation, uh, you know, you've seen some modern translations. Even the New American Bible slipped into it for a while. It said, hail highly favored one. You know, any, almost anybody could sort of be highly favored, you know. Yeah, you're, you're really swell. 
pale, really swell person, you know. It's, pretty, it's too vague. The, actually, most and even a good number of Protestant biblical scholars do, do accept the fact that, frankly, Jerome's translation, uh, Gracia Plena, hmm, he wrote the Vulgate Latin, full of grace, is probably the best rendering. Now, I'm not going to say every Protestant scholar. I'm just going to say, though, that really those... Because what we want to indicate is a perfection, a completeness, a wholeness that Mary received in the past and is actively perfect in now. So you see the vision. So how do we know Mary is sinless, you see? Oh, well, we just want her to be perfect because she's our mother. So, you know, that's that sentimental stuff, right? Well, all right. But uh, at the end of the day, it's not just based on that. It's based on this teaching from Scripture that Mary is given this title by the angel, a very strange title. Mary was wondering what this kind of greeting meant. She's used to be called by her name. You know, if someone came up to you and said, um, Hail, O chief of the world. You'd say, really? What, what does this greeting mean? <clears throat> you know, it might seem a little high and lofty, you know, to a, a, young, a young girl from a young maiden from, uh, from a little tiny town called Nazareth. Dusty little town, maybe 250, 300 people. So small that there's not even a road going to it, just a footpath. By the way, you know they spoke with a mountain twang up there and uh, they, had a, they had a hick accent. You know, Jesus and the Galileans were known by their accent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to be too silly, but there is this sense of, uh, you know, um, they, they were known for their, and the people in Jerusalem and down in Judea, uh, Judah, they really kind of looked down on the Galileans because of their country accent. And I don't know if it sounded like this, but, but it's kind of how we would sort of experience, you know. And, they, they, and so, see how humble Jesus was and how humble Mary, I mean, they came from very humble roots. A little tiny town, so tiny that one of his own apostles said, what good can possibly come from Nazareth? So imagine the scene, a young maiden, 13, 14 years of age, suddenly an angel from heaven comes. Now, by the way, anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, people are greatly disturbed. <laughs> you know, angels are not fluffy little, you know, prancing creatures with wings, you know. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bible, whenever someone encounters an angel, they want to fall on their face. They're anxious because angels are majestic. They're powerful. And Mary is troubled. And she's a little startled by this, of course. And then this angel comes to this tiny, dusty town to a 14-year-old and says, Hail, she who has been fully, perfectly graced by God. I go, whoa. <laughs> it's, it's a little much, isn't it? Right? And if you know a little bit about the Greek word, kakaratomeni, it really it does indicate a profound, rich big title. This is, she has been perfected in grace. So you see the vision here. Mary's sinlessness is well attested uh, in the scripture. Now, again, I want to say to you that um, um, just to read number three there, the average Christian is not completed in grace in a permanent sense. Uh, St. Paul says, may he who has begun a good work in you bring it to perfection or bring it to completion. See? You know, most of us are going to need a little purgatory, honestly. <laughs> if, you could, if you died today, would you say, I'm ready to go right on up into glory? You know, so may God who's begun a good work and you bring it to completion. All right. But for Mary, this, there's a perfect passive participle that's addressed to her, uh, speaking to her fullness of grace. That she is, and if she's filled with grace, well, what is grace? Grace is the life of God. Grace is the love of God. Grace is the holiness of God. Grace is the truth of God. Grace is the very life, the holiness, the power of God. And Mary is filled with it. That means there's no room for sin. See? All right, you see the vision. So this is uh, told to us. You see, you and I still lack some grace, or our lack of cooperation, at least, with grace, right? But the greeting of the angel, full of grace, in the perfect tense, indicates that grace has been received by Mary and is the permanent and perfected state of her. Okay? So... Hence, this greeting is the biblical root of the teaching of Mary's sinlessness. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to emphasize something to you. As Catholics, we don't simply proof text, right? Um, we're not just simply, oh, see, I found a line in the Bible. Zing, I gotcha. See, that's the usual, you know. 
But at the end of the day, we don't just say that she's sinless because there is this, uh, this biblical teaching. And by the way, I should have brought it with me tonight. But, you know, if you get Jimmy Akin's, you know, The Faith of the, uh, the um, oh dear, I mean, Jimmy Akin's book on the fathers. Anyone remember? Anyway, what's that? Fathers know best, yeah. You can read in this and you can look it up, but a lot of the early fathers attest to her sinlessness and so on. This is an ancient tradition that comes to us from the church. So it's a combination of our sacred tradition. It's something that we, as far back as we can remember, we've talked about and held about Mary. And then secondly, we have this biblical a citation that also confirms and conforms to our tradition. And as you know, our sacred tradition fully and fundamentally emerged even before the written record of our sacred tradition. So again, all of these are ways of saying to you that this is an ancient and a well-attested teaching of the church. So the question is, why? I want to just suggest to you uh, a kind of an argument of fittingness. Now, first of all, is it necessary that Mary should have been conceived without original sin? Now, I'm pretty sure you're clear on this, but let's be clear. We're not talking about Jesus being conceived in her womb. We're clear on that, right? This, this teaching is about Mary's conception in the womb of her mother, Anne, so that at the moment of the conception, God intervened and did not let the stain of original sin touch Mary. How he did that is up to him. But he did it, and he did it in lieu of or in... in um, anticipation of a kind of a prevenient grace. Uh, how do you like that big term, prevenient grace? Do you know what that word means? Prevenient means something that comes before. It's uh, something that comes ahead. So you might, um, it's kind of like a foretaste of something, right? So as a prevenient grace, we say that in the prayers, in fact, on uh, December 8th, uh, that, that Mary receives this grace from God in a prevenient way, namely that everything Christ would accomplish for her, she receives ahead of time. All right, so this is not independent of the work of Jesus Christ. It is, if you will, in lieu of, it's a prevenient foretaste, if you will, a, a, a grasping of God who lives outside of time and is able to take and apply this to Mary early. So it is part of the work of Christ, and yet it is also preparing her to be a worthy, if you will, ark. However, is it necessary that Mary be preserved from original sin. Now, some have sometimes fallen into the trap of thinking, yes, it is, because it was from her that Jesus took his humanity, and we all know his humanity was free of sin, so she had to be free from original sin in order so that he would be free of any taint of sin. Don't, God didn't have to do that. He could have done it just perfectly right there for Jesus. But the question, so we don't argue that it's a necessity but rather that it is a fitting doctrine for a couple of reasons. First of all, because Christ would take his humanity, although God did not have to preserve her humanity from sin, it's fitting. It's fitting. Secondly, because he would dwell in her womb. How many of you think if you had a great dignitary, do you think he'd kind of clean the house a little before they came? You know, you might sweep a little and, you know, maybe put a few dishes away. Um... God, of course, is going to dwell in her womb, and it makes sense, doesn't it, that she would be the uncorrupted, unsullied ark. She would be the pure dwelling place of God on earth. So that's fitting, isn't it? Now, one could argue, well, Jesus doesn't care about that stuff. He wouldn't mind sleeping among the trash. He's, he's a, he's a, he's a down-to-earth kind of a guy. Okay, but still, you see what I'm saying. It's not necessary, but it's a fitting thing that the, the beautiful place where the Lord would dwell for nine months, and then those beautiful arms that he would be carried in, and, and the breasts at which he would nurse, that this would be pure and sinless, because he's God, and this is fitting, fitting for God. All right. Now, but another theological reason that it makes sense that Mary should be sinless is Ave Eva. In the Latin, of course, the first word that the angel says is Ave, Ave. Uh, did the angel speak Greek? Did he speak Latin? Did he speak Aramaic? I don't know. <laughs> but we have uh, in the Latin, though, Ave. Now you turn Ave around and it's Eva. So there's always been the, a lot of the Latin fathers of the church kind of played with that as a kind of a, a, a memorable mnemonic device to remember that Mary <clears throat> is really in the role of Eve, the new Eve. So how do we get into trouble? A man, a woman, and a tree. Right? 
How do we get out of trouble? A man, a woman, and a tree. Okay. You know, God said, all right, Satan. You know, play that round again. <laughs> a man, a woman, and a tree. So Adam, Eve, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, by the way, just a thought on that tree for a minute. You know, that title, most people just walk right over that title of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the Bible, to know, K-N-O-W, almost never simply means intellectual knowing. But rather, it means experiential knowing. So, for example, it sometimes even uses a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So, Adam knew his wife Eve. I don't think they just had an interesting intellectual conversation. Uh, and then she bore Cain. She conceived Cain and bore him. You see, it wasn't as a result of an intellectual conversation so much. But rather, he knew he was intimate. He knew his wife. Now, therefore, in knowing, when God says, calls us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's saying to Adam and Eve, look... There's two ways you can know about evil. You can simply trust me. I'll tell you this is evil and this is good. And you just trust me. Good plan, right? But you know, come on. I'm going to know for myself. <laughs> so Adam and Eve decided they needed to know or experience for themselves what's good and what's evil. So in effect, the prideful sin of Adam and Eve that says this, I will do as I please. I will decide for myself what is good or evil. I will do what I want to do, and I will decide if it is good or evil. I will know for myself what is good and what is evil, or what is good and what is harmful, rather than trust God. So the catechism describes the original sin as God, or I mean, um, sorry, Adam and Eve let their trust in their creator die in their heart. And they trusted Satan, who'd done nothing for them. So you see the nature of the sin, right? So we have a man, we have a woman, and we have a tree. Now, in reversing this, we have the new Adam, Christ. We have the new Eve, Mary. And we have the tree of the cross. And Jesus experienced our sinful choice to the top. He knew it experientially he felt our sins move course through his body and mary notice this is not just off at home she's right there at the foot of the cross i know just a coincidence the bible happens to mention her there well obviously god is smarter than that right mary's yes at the uh, conception of Jesus is her fundamental yes, but she keeps saying yes. She never gives up on her son. At times she's scratching her head. Son, why have you done this to us? Remember, she lost him for three days, a little dress rehearsal. Right? And she's devastated. Son, why have you done this? He says, don't you know I have to be in my father's house? And Mary just pondered this in her heart. But you see, her yes even though she had to journey in faith like we do, her, her yes continued. And we see her little places. We're going to look at the wedding feast at Cana in a minute. But we see her all along the journey with Jesus. But her fundamental yes continues right up to the foot of the cross. When she, we would have not excused her for a minute from running and hiding her face and saying, I cannot bear to see the son I held in my arms tortured to death. We would have excused her for running and hiding we would have excused her for turning her face. But she was there, at the foot of the cross. And every a biblical account attests to her presence, you see. So, her yes, her yes. Eve said no. Mary said yes. Jesus says yes, though Adam said no. And the tree of the cross, now, the tree that brought us death, now brings us life. And it's so, Ave, Eva. So Mary's role as Eve is important in this question of her sinlessness. Why? Well, because Eve was sinless when she sinned. I mean, that's a, kind of odd, isn't it? But she, up to that point, she was created sinless, right? She and Adam were created from the hand of God as sinless, as pure. They were in friendship with God. They were, quote, naked and did not know it. There's a lot of rich symbolism in that, by the way. 
I mean, we don't just think of sexual innocence, but we think of, well, first of all, they're comfortable in their own skin. They're not hiding anything. They're open, trusting, communicative. They're relaxed. Nothing is hidden. See? And Adam sees Eve, and she, he says, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's an absence of lust. There's trust. There's communication, and so on. A beautiful portrait of the human person in our innocence. As soon as they eat the fruit, they realize they're naked, and the cover-up begins. Welcome to the cosmetics industry. <laughs> Welcome to the clothing industry. <laughs> Welcome to the mask industry, and the, the cover-up and the lies begin. It was that woman you put here with me, and the strife begins. But up to that point, there was a beauty. There was an innocence. Adam and Eve were innocent and sinless from the hand of God. And therefore, in redoing this decision, it is fitting that Christ was sinless, and likewise that Mary, who was the new Eve, would also be sinless. So that they're, you know, if you want to compare apples to apples, you see what I'm saying? So we're redoing this. See, the man, the woman, and the tree, innocent, and they sinned, but now innocent, and they stay innocent, and they continue to say yes, even though it cost them dearly. So you're seeing the fittingness now of this teaching? It's, uh, it's not just nice. It is that. But it's theologically fitting and appropriate, and it helps us to meditate on Mary's role, but also on Christ's role and what we're doing here. You see, what is, what is this whole crucifixion and death and so on and rising of the Lord? It's the man, the woman, and the tree all over again. Okay? All right. Now, um, by the way, let's be clear about something, though. Mary does not save us. Jesus, only Jesus. Now, by the way, we don't call original sin, it's our modern English expression, but in the Bible, original sin is always called the sin of Adam. It is not called the sin of Adam and Eve. We, sin reaches us through Adam. You say, well, why is that? It doesn't make sense. Weren't they both involved? I got all that. I'm sorry. I'm, I know this is politically incorrect. I've gotten into a lot of trouble with this kind of talk. <laughs> but listen, the, Adam was the head of that household. See? Adam is the head of that household. And it, he is the one who's responsible. Now, by the way, I don't have time to develop the whole story of original sin, but where was Adam when Eve was being tempted? Standing right next to her. You would never know it. <laughs> if I was Adam, I'd say, why are you talking to my wife? What are you, say, what are you saying to her? What? No, no, that's not right. He'd be, he's supposed to be there helping his wife, right? He's the head of that household. Passive husband, passive father. Have we already begun to enter into maybe the sinful realm? I don't know. But the original sin has got a couple of layers to it. It isn't just simply the eating of the piece of fruit. There's some other stuff that's going on there. He's supposed to be guarding the garden. How did this serpent get in and start to talk to his wife? And what's all this? And he's standing right next to her and says nothing. And then she takes it. She's deceived. But he bites into that fruit, and sin reaches the human family because he's the progenitor. He's the, he's the one who, if you will, gives the seed, and from his seed, the original sin comes. It's called the sin of Adam. So that when God comes in the garden, there's this plaintive cry almost of God. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? You almost hear God crying out. Of course, he knows where he is, but it's not just a question of where are you location-wise. Where are you, Adam? What's happened? Where's your heart right now? Your heart and mine are like this, but now where is it? It's a plaintive cry. And he doesn't say, Adam and Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? You know, if, if, I'm in, if there's something going on in my parish, the bishop doesn't call and say, well, get me the janitor there on the phone. <laughs> he says, get that guy Pope on the phone, right? The, the head of the household is going to be the one who has to make the report. So at the end of the day, God is coming. So we have that. We have, but there's that plaintive, and that cry still goes on. Can you hear God calling now? Listen, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He's not ignoring Eve, but the point is in calling to Adam. Remember, have you not read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two of them shall become one. So he's calling Adam. He's calling Eve. Adam, where are you? Do you hear the call? Listen. God's still calling. 
So we call it the sin of Adam. And that's why, that's why, although we're saying Mary's the new Eve, we're not saying she's, if you will, saving us along with Jesus. Only Jesus saves. Because only, first of all, only Adam got us into trouble. I mean, he's the one that sin comes from. It's called the sin of Adam. But it's also then called the salvation by Jesus. However, Mary's role is critical because Eve's role was critical. Eve was not just a, a potted plant. It says she was deceived and then she took it and she gave it to her husband. Okay, so she was involved. Right. But at the end of the day, Adam's responsible. And likewise with Christ. Mary's involved, but at the end of the day, it is Christ who saves. All right, we're clear on that, right? Okay. I hope I don't annoy you that I move so much. I'm just a big mover. I'm always moving. Sorry. Okay. <clears throat> I see you all like a tennis match, you know. Okay. So we want to say here, therefore, we have these pictures of Mary. Now, that's what I wanted to, first of all, share with you today. That Mary's sinlessness is theologically rich. It makes sense. It introduces us to her role as the new Eve. It also introduces us to the beautiful statement of the angel. It reminds us of the fittingness, although not the necessity, but the fittingness of this teaching that she is sinless. And then we know now that coming from our tradition and the scriptures, these are some of the theological roots and the things that are being, if you will, instilled in our minds. See how much we spent just on this one little word? Hail full of grace. We got a lot out of it, didn't we? This is rich theology. Now, I want to move on, though, with a couple of other thoughts about Mary. That um, Mary also uh, has some other titles and things, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about her as the new Eve. We'll see that this is not the only place where we understand her to be the new Eve. I also want to talk with her about, uh, a little bit about her as being the ark, because we talked a little bit about that. The ark, of course, let's remind ourselves, what was the ark of the covenant? It was a box of acacia wood. Um, probably about, uh, um, let's say about three cubits, so about this big by about this wide. So four by three. So it's a, it's a box about this big. And it was then covered with gold, and then it had two angels with their wings spread over. That was called the propitiatory, kind of the mercy seat. It almost looked like a, a seat for God. And, but of course, in the ark was said to dwell not just, uh, they put the Ten Commandments in there, the word made stone. <laughs> And then um, uh, the, um, they put in there a little vial of the manna, which is points to the Eucharist, and the rod of Aaron. See? So what do we have? The teaching office. We have the, the uh, sanctifying office. Now, in other words, the Eucharist is a symbol of the sacraments. And, if you will, the, um, uh, the, the governing office with the rod or the staff of Aaron. So we have teaching. So Christ's three roles of, of, of uh, teaching, of, of, of governing, and of sanctifying, right? So we see, therefore, that we have great symbols already of Christ, pointing to Christ. Mary, of course, uh, now, but even more important, what was said to dwell in that ark was the very presence of God. Literally, the ark, which is just a box, um, carried the presence of God in Israel. Now, they weren't, they weren't stupid. They understood God was everywhere like we do. However, we know that in the tabernacle in our church, God dwells in a very particular, unique, and special, and powerful way. Uh, some of our detractors say they think they've got God in a box. Yeah. <laughs> we do. Um, but we have good ancient biblical sources for that, too. You know, go all the way back to the ark. But again, we're not stupid. I know God's everywhere. But particularly uniquely. And same with the Jewish people. They had this ark, but the, more than just a box carrying things, it carried the presence of God in Israel. It was his mercy seat. It's where God was particularly. So, you see, therefore, that Mary is also uniquely understood then as the ark. Not the word made stone now, but the word made flesh. In my chapel back at the rectory, I have Moses holding the Ten Commandments, the word made stone. And then next to it, I have Mary holding Jesus, the Word made flesh. But at the end of the day, I want to say that um, Mary, of course, obviously is an ark. Is she not? She carries the presence of God. She carries him um, in Israel. Now, it's an amazing thing that happened to the ark. In 587 B.C., the ark was lost. Nobody knows where it went. You saw the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you know all about it now, right? 
But nobody knew. Did Jeremiah hide it in the hills? Uh, uh, was it buried under the temple? It's never been found. Well, yeah, actually it has been found, and I'll describe that for you. Go with me now to a very unusual moment. You know, they rebuilt, when the temple was destroyed in 587, they rebuilt it about 80 years later, and they put up the temple, and they put the Holy of Holies, but no ark. It's like a Catholic church without a tabernacle. Put the room in, no ark. Let's pretend it's there. <laughs> and still do the rites. No ark. And everybody knew it wasn't there. Now, go with me some 500 years into the future. Up on the Temple Mount, a man and a woman, and the woman carrying a babe in her arms. Where was the ark? Gone for 500 years. Nobody knew. When would God come back to his temple? A man and a woman come up the steps and into the courtyard. And an old man named Simeon is there. He takes the child in his arms. Now, Lord, you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My eyes have seen the salvation that you prepared for the house of Israel, a glory for the house of Israel, and a light unto the nations. <gasps> Only an old man, and then an Anna, the prophetess, came up, and she recognized. <gasps> but God returned to his temple in the ark, in Mary's arms. Not an ark made out of wood and gold, but a woman's arms. And she's holding the presence of God in Israel. Right there, God comes back to his temple. And only an old man and an old woman noticed it. Doesn't God have an incredible sense of drama and sort of anticlimax and quiet, quietly comes back just for a moment. And of course, Jesus said, the time for this temple is coming to an end. People will worship in spirit and in truth, and I will dwell in the hearts of all through my Holy Spirit. But still, what a, ma a miraculous moment. The Ark of the Covenant. Now you say, well, how do you, well, you're calling Mary the Ark of the Covenant. What was the biblical basis for that? And, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, there's a couple of very interesting biblical bases. So let me give you, if you have your Bibles, please open to 2 Samuel and chapter 6. 2 Samuel and chapter 6. I want to apologize. I know some of you have been through this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I heard all this. I read all this. I listened to Catholic Answers Radio, Father. <laughs> But in case you don't, and it never hurts any of us, repetition is the mother of studies, isn't it, right? Okay. Now, the scene here in 2 Samuel, in chapter 6, is that David had finally conquered Jerusalem, and he thought to himself, you know, the ark of God is dwelling out there in the hill country, and um, I want to bring God up into Jerusalem. It's going to be the great king city. And so David calls for the ark to be brought. He prepares a an area for the ark to dwell. He wants to build a temple, but you might remember uh, Nathan sort of slowed him down. You, you shed too much blood, my friend. Uh, your son will build it. But for now, God's not worried about the building. But the ark is, brought, is being brought up now. So that's the context. The ark of the covenant, that old box of, in case you would, this is long before it's lost. This is about 1000 B.C. All right. So we're, we're dealing now with, a, um, with this situation. So it says here, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Bala Judah to bring up the ark from there, the ark of God. Now, Bala Judah is the hill country of Judea. Hello? The hill country of Judea? Any echoes? <laughs> Just stay with me now. He, 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 so they went up to Bala Judah to bring the ark from there, uh, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, so the mercy seat of God. And they carried the ark upon a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, uh, which was on the hill. And, uh, and Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart uh, with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David uh, and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Uh-oh. Does that sound like modern liturgies? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. And as they came there, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. 
Do you, do you need to take care of God? It says here, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there because he put forth his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. <laughs> David <laughs> was anxious <laughs> because the Lord had broken forth on Uzzah. <laughs> and th that place is called to this day uh, uh, Perazuzzah. <laughs> That's where Uzzah perished. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Watch out, man. <laughs> And David was afraid of the Lord. And he said to this, he said this, How can the Lord, ark of the Lord come unto me? Hill country Judea, who am I that the ark of the Lord should come unto me? Any, any echoes? Hmm? Huh? Yeah. Sounds like echoing some stuff we've heard somewhere else, isn't it? How... As who am I that the ark of the Lord should come unto me? So David was not willing to take the ark into the, of the Lord into the city of David just now. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And where does Obed-Edom the Gittite live? In the hill country of Judea. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And, and it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, and now all that belongs to him, because the ark of the Lord uh, has been with him. So David went then and brought the ark of God um, from the house of Obed-Edom to the, uh, to the uh, city of David with rejoicing. And those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And he was girded with a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing these words. So, let's, let's, let's look at the echoes. Hill country of Judea. Now, if you want to flip, or you can just listen. But if you want to flip over to Luke 1 and verse 39, do that now. <clears throat> Luke 1 and verse 39. <clears throat> in those days, Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country to a city of Judah. Hill country of Judea. Same place as David with the ark. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. Now, the Greek word here is a little more clear. The babe danced. In her womb. Who danced before the ark? David. Now in the Greek uh, Old Testament, there are very similar verbs being used there. They're, they're, David's dancing, John is dancing before the ark. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed, exclaimed with a loud cry. Remember, they, David and the Israelites were shouting with joy. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How, has it, how, is it, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Who am I that the ark of the Lord should come to me? This is all just coincidental, isn't it? <laughs> it's all coincidences, Father. Doesn't mean a thing. For behold, the voice, the moment the voice of your greeting came, the babe in my womb danced for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And she and Elizabeth went on, and they say in the black church, they had some church up in here. <laughs> you know, that, my soul, said, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. <laughs> Probably not. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. <gasps> filled with the Spirit. A sinless woman filled with God. Crying out and radiating the joy of God. The joy of being with God. Oh, what a beautiful scene. Now, see, what, what's Luke doing? He's using ark language. I say Luke. It's the Holy Spirit, right? Who's the real author? But the Holy Spirit has inspired Luke here to echo ark language for Mary. All right? Who am I that the mother of my Lord? Who am I that the ark should come to me? Hill country Judea. Three, oh, by the way, it says here, Mary stayed with Elizabeth three months and return home. Ark stayed three months in the house of Obadidum the Gittite in the hill country of Judea. Mary stayed for three months. Okay, you get all that, right? Okay, all the dancing, it's all there. It's the ark. 
Now, this is not the only place. John takes up the whole tradition, too, in, in Revelation, right? Revelation, very end of chapter 11. John says something astonishing that would make a Jew jump. Stop, John, tell me more. It goes like this. I looked up into the heavens, and the temple of God in heaven was revealed, and the ark, uh, the ark was there. Behold, a great sign, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, around her head a crown of twelve stars, a moon under her feet. So he sees the ark. Well, tell us more, John. Describe the ark. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. Corona stellarum duodecim, a crown of twelve stars around her head, and so on. See the vision? So John takes up that same kind of theme of using ark language, you know, to describe Mary, all right? So I want you to see that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this all fits in because what does the Ark do? It carries the presence of God in Israel. They kept the Ark very clean. They considered the Ark very holy. Mary is holy. She is clean. The Ark carried the presence of God. Mary carries the presence of God in Israel, and so on. So she becomes the Ark of the New Covenant. And so John sees, her, sees the Ark in heaven as a beautiful woman. Luke describes using arc language for Mary. Okay? So a lot of rich theology going on here, huh? Right? Um, go to our tabernacles in the church. Now, how would we have the Word made flesh? He got it all from Mary. See? How critical she is in still being a kind of arc of the covenant for us, right? For it was from her flesh that he took his flesh, and it's his flesh and blood that we receive. So we're all very connected to Mary uh, with the ark in our churches, namely the tabernacles. Now, a final thing. I'm kind of running short on time for this last part. I want to quickly look with you, as quickly as I'm able to do. Um, with, uh, go to John chapter 2. It's the wedding feast. And I just want to say a few things. Because, you know, the other thing about Mary is, and we get criticized for this, but Mary is powerful intercessor. And I'm sorry, there's just no other way to interpret this passage than to say, Mary's got it going on when it comes to getting Jesus to get with the program, pardon the expression. So I want to just say here, um, I want to go through this as quickly as I can because I'm not known for brevity and I've got about five minutes. Or, okay, well, he's saying going like that. Okay. All right. All right. Now, first of all, I want, and by the way, in your notes you see the, these key words. You know how I love my alliterations if you've ever been with me before. I, I place the place that Mary has, the prayer that she makes, the portrait of Mary, the power of Mary, and the product of Mary's prayer. All right. So this is a story about Mary's prayer and how she's able to intercede. So notice, first of all, the place that Mary has. It simply says here, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Oh, oh by the way, Jesus was there also with his disciples. <laughs> Now, here's, here's, I think, why does John set it up this way? Because you almost never have a, a prominence given to someone other than Jesus. If the, if the apostles are listed, Peter's first. If, if, if Jesus is with them, Jesus and the apostles, and so on. But it's, in this case, Mary gets prominence. Why? Well, it's kind of like Mary's making some introductions here. How do we first get to know Jesus in Mary's arms? She held up Jesus for the for the uh, uh, wise men from the east to see. So Mary's kind of making the introduction. So there's a kind of a, an introduction. You're going to see that Mary's work here brings a lot of people to faith in Jesus. So we'll see that. So notice the place, Mary. She's mentioned first because she's doing something important. If you want to be a true, if you will, devotee, a, a true son or daughter of Mary, you've got to let her do the main work she wants to do, and that's to bring you to Jesus. All right? Mary's not about herself. She's about getting you to know her son. So what's the rosary? It's a gospel on the string, right? It's a gospel on a string. She's got you remembering all the things Jesus said and did, right? So the idea is Mary's very interested in getting you and me closer to Jesus. So she's making an introduction here. We're at a wedding feast, and she's sort of introducing us to the groom. Now, of course, the real groom is Jesus. You got that right. All right. Now, the place that Mary has. Now, let's go on and say the prayer that Mary makes. It says here, when the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus says to him, they, they said to him, they have no wine. Now, notice three things here. First of all, her discernment, her diligence, and her deference. Her discernment. Mary notices before the couple notices. 
the, we have no evidence that the couple's aware that they've run short of wine. Jesus doesn't notice. Now, as God, He knows everything. Don't get me wrong. But nevertheless, Mary notices. She'll know stuff about you before you know stuff about you. How many times do you think Mary has to go to Jesus and say, take care of that guy, Father Pope. He's got no more wine. <laughs> help him. Help him, son. He needs some help. I don't know. Whatever the... You, they, they have... Mary cries out to Jesus. They have no wine. Whatever that means for you. Whatever you're lacking. Mary notices it. And she... She sees it and she says to her son, help, help, my people, your people, they have no wine. Okay. So she discerns. But notice again, she's diligent. She doesn't just observe, well, they got no wine. Well, too bad for them. <laughs> she goes to work. She starts praying. She goes to Jesus. She's praying. And then her deference. Notice she doesn't say, they have no wine and I want you to make a bunch. She doesn't say that. She just says they have no wine. You know, one of the secrets in your prayer is try not to tell God what to do so much. You know, all right, God, um, here's the contract. Sign at the bottom. An initial up here. This is my demis. This is my list. And, you know. If you really look at the model prayers that we use in the Mass for the bidding prayers, you know, Lord, hear our prayer, they're very non-directive they just simply say, we ask you, Lord, to bless all, you know, our, our Pope and our bishops and clergy everywhere. Please bless them, Lord of mercy. Bless civil authorities, bless them, take care of them. Yeah. All right. But we don't tell them how. So I'm not saying never. You can, it's okay to be specific with God. But nevertheless, to be a little bit less directive sometimes. Mary doesn't say, now I want you to make a bunch of wine. She just says, they have no wine. So notice her prayer. She's discerning. She's diligent. She sees the problem. Even before the couple sees the problem, she immediately goes to work. She's diligent. She prays. And she goes and she's deferent to her son. They have no wine. Son, I know you'll handle it. Okay. Now, next notice, I want you to notice the portrait of Mother Mary. Jesus says something very startling to her. Woman. Woman. Now, this wasn't an unusual title for a man to speak to a woman in public. Woman this, woman that. But a man never said this to his mother. My mother died a good nine years ago, but if I went and called her woman, <laughs> I would not be here. I would not be here. <clears throat> so the title sticks out. We're being taught something here. This is a rumble strip, as Scott Hahn likes to put it, you know. I mean, slow down. This means something. He calls her woman. Why? Well, go with me to Genesis 3 and verse 15. If you don't want to take time to flip, I'll just say it from memory. God curses the devil at the moment of his original sin. He says, Satan, because you've done this, you've the most loathsome of creatures. On your belly you'll crawl and dirt shall eat the days of your life. And I will make you and the woman enemies. And one of her seed will rise and crush you while you strike at his heel. So God gave the what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first good news after sin. He says, this will not stand. It's going to take a while. I'm going to put some things in place. But Satan, I'm coming after you for what you did, and we're going to set this right. And you and the woman, the woman will be enemies. And one of her seed will rise to crush your power. Okay. So who's the man? Who's the seed? Jesus. Well, then who's the woman? Mary. So in calling her woman, John and the Holy Spirit and John are signaling to us that Jesus speaks to her this way. Pay attention. She is the new Eve. She's the fulfillment. She's the one. She's the woman. She's the woman. Okay. So, woman, how does this concern of yours affect me? Now, the Greek is tiamoikaisoi, and it's hard to translate. Literally, what to me and to thee. It's hard to understand, but it indicates a little bit of tension, though. Jesus is like, hmm, there's a little tension here. You know, how does this concern of yours, what has this got to do with me? My hour hasn't come. Okay? So, again, I want you to notice, first of all, the title of Mary. He calls her woman. But next, notice her tenacity. Jesus seems a little unwilling here. He's a little, hmm, I don't know, is this really the moment to begin my ministry? 
How many of you men, when you first went to your first job and when you were young, your mother straightened your tie? There's a beautiful story of Juan Diego that at one moment, you know, um, he's told to take the flowers and put them in the tilma and bring them to the bishop. Typical man, he just throws them in the tilma. She goes, come here. She comes. She, she straightens the tilma and she straightens up the flowers. You, that's, now that's no way to go to the bishop. <laughs> So, but there's something here. There's tension. But Mary doesn't seem to be troubled by it. Uh, what, what does this concern have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. She doesn't say a word. Maybe she gave him a look. <laughs> so we see that her title, woman, her tenacity, she stays in that conversation. Doesn't seem like Jesus wants to do it for a minute. And then notice again her trust. She simply turns, do whatever he tells you. She steps aside. She simply trusts that her son will handle this. Okay. So we've seen, therefore, the place that Mary has. We've seen the prayer that she makes. We've seen the portrait of Mother Mary. And finally, or I should say two, two final things, the power of Mary's prayer. Jesus makes about 150 gallons. <laughs> I think I'll just move on. <laughs> but in other words, he doesn't just, at first he seems unwilling. Maybe she gave him a look that only a mother can give. Yeah. I don't know what happened. She steps aside, she trusts, and the next thing you know, Jesus is doing what he didn't seem to want to do. Now he's doing it in abundance. Go to Mary. You want to get some prayers answered? You're gonna be a, you're, it's foolish not to at least try. Go and say, Mother Mary, help me out here. Now, I, I don't want to be cartoonish about this. Jesus is not unwilling, and God isn't like, Burr. he's not a grouch. But there's just something being taught here, that Mary has a capacity, because of her influence, to have special, to make Jesus even reconsider a bit. It's a mystery. I'm not here to solve it for you. God knows what we need before we ask. God wants to help us. But at the end of the day, there's just something here that Mary seals the deal. Pay attention. Enter the mystery. Try it out. Finally, the product of Mary's prayer. Jesus did this miracle as the beginning, or the sign, at the beginning of uh, Canaan in Galilee, and so revealed his glory. And because of this sign, many of his disciples came to believe in him. And so all true Marian spirituality is meant to draw you closer to Jesus Christ who can save your soul. All right? Mary presents him. She draws us to him. She wants us. She kind of introduces us, seals the deal, if you will, and steps back and says, do whatever my son tells you. The very last recorded words of Mary in the Bible are, do whatever he tells you. So I need to end. Um, we've gone through a lot of stuff tonight. I kind of gave you a big, but I want you to see that these are, these are very deep theological points, and they have a lot to do with, um, they have a lot to do with, with much more than just cosmetics and lovely lady dressed in blue and sentimental themes. All of those are fine. I'm not trying to ridicule that. But Mary is a very powerful theological role. She has a very powerful role in terms of interceding and praying. And she is Theotokos. She is the great God bearer. She deserves our love. She deserves our respect. And she, above all, uh, deserves, if you will, uh, a, a, a capacity to teach us about these important themes because all these things that I just told you tonight are really at the end of the day about Jesus. She's sinless because of Jesus. She's the ark because of Jesus. She is the new Eve because of Jesus. Uh, she is the intercessor because of Jesus. Mary is always pointing back to Jesus. In her final words, do whatever he tells you. Done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you very much. Can I get an amen, church? Thank you. Thank you. Listen, can I uh, just tell you this? Yes, thing? Oh, oh, okay. Let's do it real quick. Yeah. By the way, I just, this just came out. Uh, I only have my one copy here tonight, but it's my, my little book on the Ten Commandments. Um, 
You can go down. It's on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle version. You can get it uh, hard copy. And uh, it's called The Ten Commandments. It's not hard to forget. <laughs> and Monsignor Charles Pope. That's so. I just encourage you, if you'd like to read it, it's there. And you can get it on the Internet. Uh, go, to, well, go to Catholic bookstore, Catholic sites, or Amazon. Okay, Father, I have a serious question. The Immaculate Conception, because Mary was born without original sin, hmm. did her body ever die? Hmm. Do we know anything about that? Well, there's two traditions, right? Um, so that she sort of was just taken up and that she, she did die and then was taken up. So, um, well, we, we don't, so in other words, there's no emphatic declaration one way or the other. So, the question is, Death is, is the penalty due to sin. And Mary didn't sin, so why should she have the penalty? Well, Jesus was also sinless and took the penalty of death. So this is why we wouldn't necessarily argue uh, simply from the fact of her sinlessness that she didn't die uh, a natural death. So we don't know for sure. Uh, there, there's two traditions. One, that she was simply taken up. Another that she did, if you will, die naturally, you know, and then was quickly taken. Some beautiful icons from the East, by the way, and um, it's a beautiful picture of Mary kind of on her, her, bed, her bed, and the apostles are fretting, and Peter's nervous, and uh, Thomas is late getting there. You see Thomas in the background <laughs> trying to get in the door. But, uh, but anyway, there's Jesus holding her soul in his arms like a little baby. And uh, Mar Mary's body is there, but he's got her soul in his arms. Have you seen that beautiful uh, icon before? And it's called, the, you know, the Dormition or the, you know, the, uh, the, the going to sleep of Mary. So anyway, different traditions, so we don't know. We don't know. We don't know for sure. We have two, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two questions together coming in online. And just to, by the way, regarding the assumption of the Mother of God, we do have a whole talk on that back here on CD. So if you want to get a little bit more into that topic, um, you can grab a CD after the talk. Uh, I want to read both questions together because I think they, they, they both are looking at it from two different perspectives, but the same thing. The first one coming from Dan in Grand Ledge, Michigan, says, If Christ saves us, can you shed any light on why we consecrate ourselves to Mary, ask her to guard us, or entrust ourselves to her protection? Wouldn't it be more appropriate to direct these requests to Jesus? Uh, and Craig asking the same basic question, what would you say to, a, to many Protestants who say that the church seems to be preoccupied with Mary at the expense of Christ? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I try to, and that, that maybe the second question first, I try to avoid all or nothing thinking. There's a lot of that in the world today. Are you saying that, well, no, we're saying a little bit of both. Obviously, we can go straight to Christ, and we should. Obviously, we're meant to. Mary wants us to have a very personal, direct relationship with her son. But uh, Mary, Mary helps in that. Um, and uh, I think most of you live in families, and you sometimes know that a, a mother is sometimes able to broker some things that in the fam among the family members that sometimes directly they're not as able to. Not, and for us, it would never be because Jesus had a problem, but sometimes we do. And there's a kind of a human condition. So I think that, again, we're talking about a spirituality here, not an absolute requirement. You must pray the rosary. That's not, a, you know, it's a, I hope you do. But it's, it's, it's certainly um, something that uh, is, is uh, not uh, absolute requirement, and it's something that is a spirituality. Now, the second thing about consecrating ourselves to Mary and so on, I, once again, I think here we're, we're simply the, the, the great motto is Jesus through Mary. And it simply goes to this fact. How did we receive Mary into the world? Now, God could have come down on a lightning bolt, written down on a lightning bolt as a full-grown man, but he didn't do it that way. Why? Well, I don't know. Talk to him. But he chose not to have an earthly father, but to have a, an earthly mother to, to gestate in her womb, to be conceived in her womb and, and born through her and so on, carried. Now, so the question, I think, is ultimately in terms of the spirituality, we entrust ourselves to Mary's care actually in imitation of Jesus himself. Why do I love Mary? Because Jesus loves Mary. Why do I entrust myself to her care? Because Jesus entrusted himself to her care. Why, why do I uh, uh, ask her to teach me to pray? Because Jesus asked his mother to teach him to pray. Um, why, why did he do it? Talk to him. But I love Jesus. I entrust myself to her care. I, I, uh, I, I ask her help because Jesus did all these things and I want to be just like Jesus. So I would say again, 
Um, these are, this is a form of spirituality that uh, is, uh, like many things in the church, there are different spiritualities that emphasize different things. So we don't want to reduce the Catholic Church to just one thing, but rather we have a, a, we're also very devoted to the Blessed Sacrament. How many of you go to adoration? You know, come on, y'all, see? That sounds pretty devoted to Jesus to me. All right, so you see, so I think it's a question of uh, both and rather than either or or all or nothing. Yeah. I hope so, Andy. I hope that answers the question. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, with, given the per, pervanian grace? That's a new word oh, for me. Pervanian, yeah. Would it have been possible for Mary to say no, given that the grace had been completed? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's be clear. I mean, we have to hold that Mary had free will, because if she didn't have free will, her yes wouldn't mean yes. It would just mean yes. You know, robot, robot. We, so obviously uh, could, but I, I think that what we would want to say is that um, God gave her every grace necessary. And um, I think that's about what we can say. I, but we, want to, we cannot simply say that Mary could not have said no. Um, how likely that she would have said no given the graces that she had? Well, Eve did say no. She had the same kind of graces. But at the end of the day... I think that we can certainly say that Mary's yes was highly assisted by God's grace uh, due to her sinlessness. She wants what God wants because she's saintly. I have two questions. Mm -hmm. My first question is you said that the concept of a magna conception was a tradition. Are there any early church fathers that wrote about this? My mm -hmm. second question is I forget which pope it was that made this a dogma mm -hmm. and why was that necessary? Um, and I have one more question. Yeah. When um, Mary appeared before Bernadette and said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Mm -hmm. So is that, what does that all mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, Mary was uh, declared with this title again uh, at, this, at the First Vatican Council in the, somewhere. It was very late. You're right. It was late. It's kind of a curiosity, isn't it? And um, why, why this all happened and so on? Well, as old Fulton Sheen just said, you know, things, the church tends to divine things when, uh, when we're attacked. Um, so um, th there were a lot of questions and things arising, and Protestantism was pretty underway by that time, and there were a lot of concerns and attacks, and it was felt at the time it was good to define this. Um, however, he speaks of in, in the document, you know, that this is an ancient tradition. Now, I'm sorry to say, I meant to bring it with me. I didn't do all my homework, you know, in that sense, I didn't bring that book with me, but the fathers, can anyone help me with any of the fathers that you know offhand, or does anyone have a copy of the book handy? But it's well attested in. When we say tradition, by the way, we're talking here both lowercase t and uppercase t tradition. There are statements and so on that speak of her as sinless and so on. Uh, was it a formally defined dogma until the, uh, um, uh, no, uh, it, but it's, it's been an uh, uppercase T tradition long proclaimed by the church. Now, uh, the other question was, I think you said, um, oh, um, the, um, it's an interesting confirmation that comes from Bernadette's uh, the apparition um, and at Lourdes because um, she um, Mary announced herself with this title and what made it interesting was that Bernadette could not have reasonably known that title yet it was brand new she's just a little peasant girl um, unlikely she would have known what the title meant and when she was asked she didn't really know what it meant but she said the lady said I'm the Immaculate Conception you know so again there's a kind of a, a, a in a way, Mary's sort of signaling to the world that what was done was fitting. And that's, I think, how to interpret that. So, okay? So. Thank you very much, Monsignor. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.